I'm turning today to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4 and verse 21. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, verse 21. And he, the Lord, said unto them, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed, and not to be set on a candlestick? And our subject is sowing divine seed. Now, following the parable of the sower, which is obviously about that, where the sower depicts Christ, first of all, then his apostles, and then their successors, that is us today, following the parable of the sower, where the seed is sown, you'll remember, indiscriminately, far and wide, come these further passages in chapter 4 that are all on the same subject. The Saviour hasn't changed the subject. And he continues then from the sower into verse 21 here, and he's speaking about uh, his people as light-bearers of the gospel of grace, of the message of salvation. That's our subject for this morning. Verse 21, he said unto them, is a candle, is actually no candle as such in the Greek, it's a lamp. It comes from the word for light. A lamp a portable lamp of some kind. But our translators have chosen the word candle in their generation. Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel, a kind of uh, measuring vessel? But of course not. Or even worse, under a bed? And in our minds today, you would think of putting a lamp or a candle under a bedstead, well, that would be ridiculous, but even more absurd, of course, in the time of Christ, because there was no bedstead. There was no raising of the mattress from the ground, leaving a space underneath with a bedstead. No, there was just a kind of uh, uh, palace or thin mattress that lay on the ground. Is a candle, it's even more absurd, or a lamp be brought into the room to be put under such a mattress lying on the ground. Presumably, the candle or the lamp would not have been lit. It would be too crazy an illustration if you picture a lighted lamp put under a mattress lying on the ground. They haven't even lit it in this illustration. That's obvious. Is a lamp brought to be put under a bed or mattress? But yet, that's a very good picture. There are even churches that have the lamp. They have the gospel. They have the redeeming word. But they never light it. It's left out and buried somewhere. And there is no evangelism and no visitation of the community and no gospel call going out and no specific 
evangelistic sermons preached, just a little word here and there, perhaps, for the unconverted at best. But no persuasive preaching of the gospel. And you can imagine this being in mind. Is a lamp brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed and not to be set on a candlestick that is a lampstand? Of course, it's put in an elevated position so that the whole room is illuminated and all can see. Of course, most people lived in one-room houses in those days. So that's the first verse. Obviously, it's the lamp of the gospel. And the room is, if you like, the world in this case, the community. What's the purpose of the gospel in the hands of saved people to make it known? Well, we've spoken of a church, but what about individuals? What about us and our witness and our taking of every opportunity and our praying for opportunities to speak to people within the family, within the business, within our workplace of whatever kind as opportunity arises? We have this lamp. It's the most precious thing imaginable, the lamp of salvation the knowledge of the world and the meaning and purpose of life and the destiny of every human being and the way of salvation. What do we do with it, friends? Under a bed, a mattress lying on the ground. But now verse 22. For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither was anything kept secret but that it should come abroad. Well, now, if you read verses 11 and 12, which we've already considered of this chapter, you read this. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without the unsaved, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Now, when you read those verses, you remember that one of the reasons for the parables explained only to the disciples but not to the crowds was because there was a veil put over the gospel. There was a, a veil so that this gospel message would not before time infuriate the Jewish hearers. Christ was working to a timetable. He spoke to those in whose hearts there was enlightening grace. They would understand the parables. The disciples had them explained. And though repentance and remission of sins was preached, yet there was a certain amount of veiling over the message. And there was a reason for this, because the timetable of Christ had to be kept. He would walk today, tomorrow, the next day. He would preach. 
He would heal, show his divine power, show his compassion for needy souls. He would be working in the hearts of some people, but the gospel couldn't be too plain and too clear yet because it would cause a riot. Because Christ, who was sought, they did wish to execute him, the leaders. They tried to take him many times, but their efforts would have been all the greater had this message been openly proclaimed from the beginning. It was too offensive to those nationalistic Jews. The disciples had to be instructed and trained. Then Christ had to go to Calvary when everything would be much clearer anyway. What he had come for, what he was doing, he had to be raised from the dead to demonstrate that his work was entirely successful. And then the Spirit had to be poured out. And then everything that could had been veiled to some extent could be opened up and made totally public. So compare verses 11 and 12 with verse 22. Or I'll read verse 12. That seeing they may see and not perceive, things were done in parables, a certain veiling. But then Christ says, there is nothing hid, Verse 22, don't you see he's referring to his veiling of the truth, his veiling of the parables and the message. There is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. The time is coming when all the wrappings will be taken off and everything will be public, and the duty of the sower and the Lord's people will be to make it known far and wide. Well, we could go to other verses. I could turn you to a longer explanation in Matthew's Gospel of chapter 10. But to proceed to verse 23, if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. That's a very solemn expression which uh, signals that something very profound and important is being said. So now the time will come for plain speech and open preaching. Verse 24, he said unto them, Take heed what ye hear. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you. And unto you that hear shall more be given. There's two principles in there for us. And don't forget the subject is still sowing the seed, proclaiming the gospel, witnessing for Christ, preaching for him the message of salvation. And the first point is take heed what you hear. If you understand these words, that everything must now be proclaimed. Christ is now crucified. The message is open and clear. His work is plain. He has risen from the dead. The Spirit has come. Now everything is open. If you understand that, and maybe even 
You understand it to the point where you are critical of others who don't obey it. I don't think much of that person. Never witnesses. Never represents Christ. I don't think much of that church. Doesn't do anything to make known Christ. Ah, well, now you're in a very vulnerable position because with what measure ye meet, the very judgment you apply to others shows how much you understand this point and you will be judged by your words. What about you? What about you? I get it, you say. Now the gospel is open. I must proclaim it. And I can immediately think of people who don't do it. What about me? That's the message of verse 24. Take heed what you hear. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you. And unto you that hear shall more be given. Now that's important. Did you know, while salvation is entirely free, unearned, there's nothing we can do to contribute to it, while salvation is entirely by grace, through faith, yet once we're Christian, subsequent blessing from the Lord is conditional. It's different. Salvation is free, but ongoing assurance and blessedness is conditional. Conditional upon what? Our obedience to the Lord. And in this context, our readiness to make him known. Unto you that hear shall more be given. Verse 25. For he that hath to him shall be given. And he that hath not from him shall be taken even that which he hath. In other words, if you honor the Lord and you pray for opportunities and you live a life which commends the gospel and commends your message and you seize every opportunity within the family and further afield, you will be blessed on account of that. We'll come to the details in a minute. But if we don't, if we hide that light, never even light the lamp and put it under the mattress and conceal it, then even some of the assurance and blessing which we've been given gratuitously by the Lord may be taken away. So, dear friends, blessing is conditional. You can't lose salvation, but blessing is conditional. And so there's an encouragement for us. And we come down to verse 26, and the subject is still sowing and reaping. But before we come to it, why are we silent? If we are, why are we silent? Are you fearful? Nervous? 
bashful, fearful. Well, pray, dear friends. Surely we can be bold for the Saviour if the opportunity arises. Can't we push past that just those qualms, those surface fears, that shyness? Think of what he's done for us. Nothing would stop him coming to atone for our sin. Nothing would stop him, the Holy One, coming into this fallen world and suffering so much for us. Can't we raise a voice for him? Are we faithless? Because we haven't witnessed We don't think it would do any good. So every time we get an opportunity, we don't think it would serve any purpose because we don't trust him to use us and to bless us and to help us. Have we become uncaring? Sometimes it happens to us all. We don't care about that person's soul. We don't care. That's terrible that we should have been given so much and we don't care about the plight of others. It may be you have a hard lot in life. It may be you have a profession or a job which means you have to be somewhat tough and face difficult things and steel yourself and get on. Don't let it harden your heart. For souls, pray for softness of heart, for Christian sympathy. Be fearful if you find you don't care about people around you. Has this secular life governed you too much, caring about many things in the world and never giving time to souls, to meditating on your blessings? Is it perhaps that you're just unprepared? What would I say? You're caught out. An opportunity comes. I'm not sure how to handle the situation with this particular person. Well, dear friends, shouldn't we give some time to preparing? Just thinking? I've got in my place of employment or place of study this person, that person, I have quite a lot to do with. I must pray for that person, but I must also think, supposing that person turned to me and said, let's, let's take something obvious. Why do you go to church? What exactly would I say? Well, think about it. Prepare. Have some ideas ready. Then when the moment strikes, you won't be caught out and backing off. Give some time. We daydream, even busy people, we waste a lot of time thinking about all sorts of things that don't matter. Why not allocate some of that time to preparing for an opportunity which hasn't even come up yet? What would I say? How would I handle this protest, that protest, this question, that question? Have I read anything? 
about witness? Do I know how to respond to awkward responses? All these things really we're stirred to as we read these passages. For he that hath, to him shall be given. And he that hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he hath. And then verse 26, And he said, So is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground. Now this is an interesting parable of witness. And it's only in Mark's gospel. You think, no, it's in Matthew. No, no, the uh, story in Matthew is more complex. There are other factors which are not here in Mark. It's obviously told on a different occasion. Some of the same elements, but a different parable. This version of the parable is only in Mark's gospel, and it was told within moments of the parable of the sower. So it's helpful to us. So is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is people. And Christ is the king. Saved people, Jews and Gentiles. So is the kingdom of God. And this is how it's built up. This is how it comes about. As if a man should cast seed into the ground. Like the parable of the sower, the language is indiscriminate. Cast. This isn't a measured application. This isn't a specific sowing. I will sow this seed in this place. It's an indiscriminate sowing of the seed. It's the gospel call. The tender of salvation to all people, even the non-elect. The unsaved, we preach the gospel to all. If a man should cast seed into the ground, and then verse 27, and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, he knoweth not how. You notice that first of all, the sower, Christ, followed by his apostles, followed by us. We are the sowers today. The sower had work to do. He had to expend energy and labor, indiscriminately sowing the seed far and wide. But once he'd sown it, well, presumably he does other things on his small holding, And he's very busy with other work. But as far as this crop is concerned, he's doing nothing. He sleeps and he rises day and night. He has nothing to do with the growing of the crop. And the seed should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. It's all now out of his jurisdiction. He's sown the seed. He can do nothing else for the moment. Verse 28. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that 
the full corn in the ear. And that marvellous transformation of the seed into crop, fully grown and mature, the farmer had nothing to do with in this parable. And that teaches us. Now, there are Christian workers, and they're saved, and they mean well, but their understanding of these things is uh, not biblical. And they seem to think that by your farming or techniques of preaching, proclaiming, caring for souls, you do more than sow the seed. You somehow contribute to its germination and its growth and its development. And so they'll say to you, uh, you must do this, you must do that. And some of the great crusades that have been held in the last 50 years are full of human interference with the growing of the seed. And uh, sometimes it's quite crazy. They'll even statistically plot what they're doing. If we um, appeal for people to be saved in this way, we get so many percent more responses. And if we do that, and you mustn't let a person go, having preached the gospel, get them to come to the front or something, and then put them under further explanations and uh, efforts, and do this for them and do that for them. You've got to bring about conversion. If you just preach to them, then they're all lost. But according to this parable, that is exactly the right thing to do. You preach persuasively, you witness, you appeal, and you leave it to the Lord. Only he can bring about germination, regenerate the soul, convict the person, plant a sense of need which grows up, turn that person into a seeking, longing person, convicted of sin, bring that person to the place of repentance, and faith consciously. That is a work of God. We cannot manipulate that. We can, oh, yes, you can, they say. Make the church more like a theatre. Have wonderful, huge choirs singing in a certain way. Stir the emotions. Dip the lights. Have a really dramatic, emotional preacher mount a great invitation system. This all helps germinate the seed and produce the life. It doesn't. It's human manipulation. It's emotional manipulation. It's superficial. It's nonsensical. It cannot achieve the work of conversion. We proclaim, but the Lord germinates and gives the growth, and we must trust him. All we can do is pray. That's the meaning of the parable. It's a lesson on soul winning and how we proceed. But then verse 29, when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he, who? The sower. First of all, Christ then the apostles, now us, putteth in the sickle, 
because the harvest is come. Now there's no doubt that this parable can also be applied in a very general way to the entire course of the gospel. Here we're in the gospel age, the gospel is being proclaimed, God is causing the seed to germinate and produce Christians, those who profess the Lord and love him. And at the end of time, the great harvest is reaped. So the parable can actually apply in a much wider way to the entire scene of the gospel age. But its first and primary application is to soul winning. When the fruit is brought forth, the sower puts in the sickle because the harvest is come. It may be that when people come to Christ, a little, and I use this term very carefully, a little midwifery is needed. God has saved the soul. God has produced life. But sometimes the person who has found the Lord is a little unsure and stumbling and still troubled by many doubts and wondering, am I saved? Am I saved? I've prayed for salvation. I've repented of my sin. I believe I've trusted solely in Christ. Has he given me life? And sometimes a little gentle midwifery is needed to help bring that soul forward, not to interfere with the process, not to tell people they're Christians before they are. But sometimes it's obvious. And you can say to a person, why? Two months ago, wild horses wouldn't bring you to church. You were against the gospel. You scoffed at everything. You objected to everything. You protested against everything. And now here you are, and the most important thing in the world to you right now is whether you're saved or not. What a change. What a change. Don't you think you ought to be thanking the Lord and praising him and worshipping him? Look what he's done already. If he hasn't entirely saved you, you must be three quarters of the way there. You must take encouragement and trust him with all your heart. Sometimes a little midwifery is called for and we help a person to see the realities that great care is needed because you don't want to assure someone, as I've said, that they're saved when maybe they're not. And you see that in this amazing parable. It's much more profound than you may think at first glance. 
So you sow the seed, you'll leave it in the hands of the Lord, but when the fruit is brought forth, he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. And we see by the blessing of God, souls saved on a regular basis, coming through to light and understanding. It's his doing, and it is wonderful. Well, time is out, and I'm going to go for conclusion straight away to verse 36. When they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. Remember, he'd been preaching from the ship, the boat, in the sea, to the great crowd on the shore. And there were also with him other little ships. I should be very quick with this. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. Full of water. The waves beating into the ship. In Matthew's Gospel, we read that it happened suddenly, and he puts it slightly differently. In the Greek, he says, the ship was swamped. They must have been almost up to their waists. It was now full. It was such an upheaval of the sea. The Greek word that... uh, we have in English in the form of seismic disturbance is used. It was like an earthquake in the sea, a great seismic disruption. Verse 38, And Christ was in the rear part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, whatever that was. And they awake him, They had some faith, look, and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? They had faith to believe that if Christ was awake, it was possible they may be saved. But not that much faith, because if he was asleep, then he could do nothing for them. But when we're in a panic, We think in curious ways. In Matthew's Gospel, what we read in verse 40 here comes first. In Matthew's Gospel, before he silenced the gale, the tempest, and the seas, he asked them a question. Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith or little faith? That question was actually asked while the storm was still raging. And it's an important question. Why do you have little faith? Haven't I just appointed you disciples? He might have said to them, do you think you would have been appointed if you were promptly going to perish? We need to reason often in times of panic and fear. But verse 39, the great, great verse, he arose and rebuked the wind. 
Now, let's, let's not be foolish like the charismatics and say, if he rebuked the wind, it must mean that there was a demon in the wind. And this was a demonic matter. No, it wasn't. No mention of that anywhere. He rebuked the elements. Doesn't mean there were demons in them. And he said unto the sea, Peace, be still. Is marvellous the way it's translated. What he literally says in the Greek is, Be still, be silenced. Be still. He's speaking to the mighty heaving seas. Like an earthquake. Walls of sea coming at that vessel. Be still. And to the howling gale, be silenced. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm straight away. And verse 41, they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, of course, this is all in the context of witness. And immediately after the teaching on witness comes the miracle. If he can instantaneously silence the wind and the sea, he can help us in anything. In our witness, think of the disciples. They would have so much persecution hurled at them, so much hostility. They would nearly all lose their lives as martyrs. It would be hurled at them constantly. But they trusted in the one who had power over the elements, over the wind and the sea. He can help us in anything. And so when you think of the nervousness that attaches to witness and the fear and the shyness, can't he help you? In anything, there's a message here for the seeker. When the devil comes and assails you with doubts, doubts about the faith, doubts about whether or not you're making any progress or you're saved, when he does that, you pray to Christ, trust in him, cling to him. And the words are pronounced, peace, be still. And because you put your faith in him, you'll come through into the great calm and wonder and delight of salvation. And your soul will be assured and you'll know you're his at length and you'll see the evidence. Oh, Christian, there's some Christian believer here. And you've been a believer for years and you're assailed with troubles right now. And the devil tells you, you failed. And perhaps he tells you, has the temerity to say you have no standing. And he conjures up doubts by the dozen. Go to Christ. Pray to him. Ask him. Peace. Be still. He'll give you calm and strength. That's what he does. The parable can apply to you.
And then when you die, last moments of life, there may be many concerns on your heart, unresolved issues, problems. What's going to happen in the family to all your affairs? And you know it's your last hours. The Lord has been yours through life. But now the enemy just may attack. But you look to him. Peace. He declares. Because at length you'll sail through into the shore of perfect peace and bliss and happiness and light and wonder and glory. You could apply this in any number of directions. But the intended application here is witness. Peace, be still. He'll see you through. All the doubts will go. All the fears will go. You'll embark on that witness with a silent prayer, looking to him, and he'll give you calm and control of your words. And you'll be blessed, and you'll be used, and you'll prove him, and thank him, and glory in him. It's all in this chapter about sowing the seed.